Good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you back. We had a wonderful beginning, and I look forward uh, to uh, the rest of the conference today. Just a couple of quick reminders before we begin. Uh, <clears throat> want to point out to you that we do have sched printed schedules for the conference. They're just outside uh, the, d the double doors there and on the table to the right. And so you can pick that up if you, if you need and uh, can kind of know what the schedule is like. I will just point out that we are going from 9 o'clock uh, from now until noon. And then you are on your own for lunch. And uh, you have an hour and a half lunch break. We'll be meet back here at 1.30. And so, again, you can pick up the, the schedule if you like just to kind of know what, what we'll uh, be doing for the day. Also, please help yourself to uh, all the, the snacks and the refreshments back over here. Uh, and the restrooms are down the hall to the right. We will give you breaks throughout the conference so that you can utilize those things. And <clears throat> also want to encourage all of you uh, to consider giving, prayerfully consider giving to ARF. Uh, when you do, that, that giving goes towards these conferences and, and helps to put those on, and so <coughs> uh, we would ask that you prayerfully consider that. The last uh, note is, uh, just want to remind everyone once again, please silence your cell phone so we can limit uh, distractions as much as possible uh, throughout the conference. And last, for those of you who may have not have been here uh, last night, I do want to just introduce to you again uh, the Reverend Glenn Clary. He's an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, where he uh, pastors at Providence OPC in Pflugerville, Texas. Glenn holds a bachelor's degree from Southwestern Christian University in Bethany, Oklahoma. He has a Master of Divinity degree from Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and a Doctor of Ministry degree from Erskine Theological Seminary. He studied uh, a whole lot on, on Reformed worship and uh, speaks on that topic, amongst other topic, topics as well. Um, we're so grateful to have him with us this weekend. I had a great start yesterday uh, talking about uh, worship in the garden. I think he's going to conclude that this morning and then uh, take us uh, further down uh, the road of redemptive history and uh, show us worship throughout the Bible, throughout the whole Bible. And so we're really looking forward to it. Uh, so I uh, invite Glenn to come forward and, and to continue that teaching for us. And if he wants to open us with the word of prayer, that'd be wonderful. morning. It's good to be back here with you. I trust you slept well last night. It's a little chilly out there this morning, but it's supposed to warm up and be a beautiful day today. Why don't we begin with looking at Revelation 4 and 5. I, I want to read just a couple of chapters from Revelation, and then I'll lead us in prayer, and then we will go way back uh, to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 2, and resume where we left off last night and talking about worship in the garden. Uh, but let's start with uh, Revelation uh, 4 and 5. This is a vision of the upper register, the heavenly temple. John 
uh, is taken up into heaven. He is in the spirit on the Lord's day, and he's in the throne room of God, and he sees the worship of God by the angels in heaven. And God is worshiped and praised for his work of creation. That's specifically highlighted in chapter 4 of Revelation but also for his work of redemption in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the seed of the woman. And that comes into view, especially in Revelation chapter 5. So Revelation 4 and 5, I'll, I'll read both chapters. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we praise you for you are good and your mercy endures forever and your faithfulness to all generations. We praise you, O Lord our God, for you have created us in your image and after your likeness. You have created the heavens and the earth, the seas and all that is in them, and you have revealed your glory to us in your handiwork. And we thank you, Father, that you have redeemed us through the Lamb who was slain, the Lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered and who leads us in worship in the heavenly sanctuary. We pray in Christ's name that you would be with us this day as we study the Holy Scriptures to understand what they teach us concerning the worship of you. And Father, we pray that by your grace you would make us faithful worshipers. For we ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen. All right, let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. Picking up where we left off uh, last night, I had mentioned that Adam was a prototypical high priest dwelling in the prototypical Holy of Holies, which is the Garden of Eden. And that location, the Garden of Eden, was to be the site of his probationary test. As the royal high priest of the temple, would he fulfill the work that God gave him to do? Would he pass the probationary test? That's the question. And that test had to do with a special tree in the Garden of Eden that is identified in chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 9. So look at Genesis 2 and verse 9. It says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of the life of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And notice that it first mentions every tree, and then it singles out those two special trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's a distinction between every tree and those two special trees. Those two trees will be crucial elements in Adam's probationary test. God made a covenant with Adam that included sanctions, meaning future consequences for keeping or breaking that covenant. And the two sanctions of that covenant were attached to those two special trees in the garden. There's the curse sanction on the one hand and the blessing sanction on the other. The curse sanction of the first covenant is death. And that sanction is attached to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we sometimes call the probationary tree. The blessing sanction of that covenant is life. And that promise or that sanction is attached specifically to the tree of life. The curse sanction, of course, is the consequence for breaking that covenant and the blessing sanction is the consequence of keeping that covenant. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the language, the name itself, the name of the tree suggests moral discernment, the knowledge of good and evil, and it most likely represented moral autonomy. 
eating of that tree would be tantamount to a rejection of God's absolute authority as the highest and final arbiter of truth and wisdom and the sole authority that defines good and evil. So the name of the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, describes the nature of Adam and Eve's rebellious act, their effort to acquire moral autonomy, to be the ultimate judge of good and evil rather than to submit to God as the ultimate judge of good and evil. The tree of life uh, symbolically promised and would seal glorified eternal life as the reward of successful probation. Now, if you can, keep your place in Genesis and flip over to the book of Revelation uh, once again. And if you're using an electronic device, I don't know how you keep your place, but you can get back there pretty quickly. So Revelation uh, chapter 2 and verse 7, there are a couple of places where the tree of life reappears in the book of Revelation. One is in chapter 2, verse 7, which says the following. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now look at Revelation twenty-two fourteen. Revelation twenty-two fourteen. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Now that city is the most holy place. That's the holy of holies. Enter that city by the gates. What does that remind you of? The Garden of Eden, right? The gate that was blocked in the Garden of Eden to keep Adam away from the tree of life. Okay, so the tree of life, the life that is symbolized by that tree is eschatological life. It's the life of the age to come. It's not the life of the present age, but it's the higher kind of life. It's the higher state of life. It's the life, as we, I was putting it last night, that is associated with the upper register, not the lower register. So it is consummative life. Now, likewise, in the curse sanction, which is uh, associated with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the curse is death, that death is also the final death. It's what the book of Revelation calls the second death. And so the death, the curse sanction, is the second death, and life promised in the covenant of works is the second breath of the Spirit. That's that upper register life. Okay, so the tree of life... Um, the tree of life was a pledge of God's promise of the second breath of the Spirit. That's implied in Genesis 2, 16 through 17, and again in Genesis 3, 22. Now let's go back to Genesis chapter 2, and before we look at verses 16 and 17, let's go to verse 15, Genesis 2, 15. Genesis 2, 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it, to work it, and keep it. Keep it can be translated guarded. Now the first term is usually interpreted to mean cultivate. To work the garden is, is ordinarily interpreted to cultivate it, meaning to work the earth, to till the ground. But it could also have in view the cultural mandate that was given to Adam that we looked at last night in Genesis 1.28, to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. 
But Michael Morales, in a book that I uh, mentioned to you last night, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord, which is a biblical theology of the book of Leviticus, says that those two terms, to work and keep, or to work and guard, Morales says that those two terms are used elsewhere in the Pentateuch only to describe the duties pertaining to the tabernacle that the priest and the Levites would carry out in the tabernacle. And he gives a few references, Numbers 3, verses 7 through 10, Numbers 8, 26, and Numbers 18, 5 through 6. Now, Morales concludes that Adam is hereby, in Genesis 2, 15, Adam is hereby depicted as the original high priest abiding in Eden, the original Holy of Holies. And Adam has a twofold office. He was a priest and a king, a priest king, or a royal priest. And one of the specific tasks given to Adam as a priest king was to guard the garden. He was to keep it, or to guard it. And the word guard is the same word used for Israel's priests who were commanded to guard the temple from unclean intruders. Again, Numbers 3 and Numbers 18, especially Numbers 18, 1 through 7, I think is helpful there. Because the garden of Eden is holy, it must be guarded to protect the sanctuary, the holy sanctuary, from defiling encroachment. That was Adam's obligation. That was his duty. That was his covenantal responsibility as the servant of the Lord and guardian of the garden temple. And any unclean person who comes near the sanctuary shall be put to death, Numbers 18.7. Anyone who defiled the holy realm was to be put to death by the priest who guarded it. That's the role of the gatekeeper of the temple, which we were talking about last night. That was Adam's role as in the garden temple. He was the guardian of the holy realm. And specifically as a holy priest and righteous king, he was supposed to crush the head of the unclean serpent. That's the unholy intruder in the garden, Genesis 3.15, crush the head of the serpent. Now, of course, what Adam failed to do, Christ, the second Adam and last Adam, did. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3.10, or 3.8, rather. He came to crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. Christ, the second Adam, will be a priest king who succeeds in his probation in conflict with the serpent, which the first Adam didn't do. Now look in Genesis chapter 2 and verses 16 and 17, and this is really the key text in Genesis 2 for the covenant that God made with man. Genesis 2, 16 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Now God spoke to Adam. He spoke to him in the Garden of Eden. This is special revelation, not natural revelation, not general revelation, not the revelation of God in nature. But there's a special verbal revelation. God spoke to man. And this is before the fall, of course. It's before the period of redemption. So this is pre-redemptive special revelation. He receives this verbal word from God. Genesis 2.16. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now that spells out the focus of Adam's probationary task. Adam was given a great work to do. He was given a great mandate, a commission uh, to fulfill, but his work in faithful obedience to God is brought to a special focus in this 
critical probationary covenantal test associated with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God made a covenant with Adam as the covenant head of humanity. Sometimes we call Adam the federal head. The word federal just means covenant. He's the federal head, the covenant head. And because he's the head of the covenant, he represents all humanity. He's the representative, uh, he's the representative head of all humanity as the head of the covenant. So if he breaks that covenant, he himself becomes liable to the covenant curse, the death sanction, and since he represented us as our covenant head, that curse will come upon us too. We too come under the death sanction of the covenant of works. Now there you might look at Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, and 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. So all of the elements of a covenant are present here in the Garden of Eden. There are the parties of the covenant, there's God and Adam, there's the promise of the covenant, the promise of life, there's the penalty of the covenant, the penalty of death, and then there are the stipulations for the covenant, what he must do to get the blessing of the covenant, obey God, and what will happen to him if he disobeys God. Those are the sanctions of the covenant. Now that covenant is called, uh, as I said, the covenant of works because it required works, and more specifically, it required perfect and personal obedience from Adam as the condition or the stipulation for attaining the covenant promise of life, uh, the blessing of the covenant. So it's called the covenant of life because it promises life and the covenant of works because that's the stipulation for attaining that life. Now that's implied in the negative command in Genesis 2.16. If you eat from this tree, you will die, but if you do not eat from this tree, you will live. So it's implied in Genesis 2.17. And it comes out, I think, more clearly in chapter 3 and also in Revelation 2.7 and Revelation 22, etc. Now what is needed for Adam to advance from his original state as an earthly creature made of the dust from the ground living in this lower register, what is needed for him to advance from that lower state to the higher state, the upper register, and to receive that consummate of life? There are two things that are needed. There's the covenant in which God promises life, life to him, and the second thing is his obedience. What is needed is a covenant and an obedient covenant head, an obedient federal head. Now, the covenant bond that God conferred on Adam in the covenant of works established communion with him. Adam, as the image of God in covenant with God, has fellowship with God on God's holy mountain in the Garden of Eden, the holiest place. Worship in the garden, the intimate communion and fellowship with God that Adam and Eve enjoyed was covenantal in nature, and it was also, and this is very important with regard to worship, it was also centered on word and sacrament. Now, the word in the covenant of works is that verbal special revelation that God gave to Adam, declaring the words of the covenant, the promises, sanctions of the covenant, stipulations of the covenant. God declares the covenant to Adam. And the sacraments would be those two trees appended to those covenant words. The tree of life was linked to the covenant blessing, life, and the tree of the knowledge was linked to the covenant curse, death. So the sacraments are simply covenant signs appended to 
the words of the covenant to confirm those words or to seal those words or confirm those words. If you're familiar with the Westminster Confession, larger catechism, shorter catechism, you're familiar with that language with regard to the sacraments. They are covenant signs and seals, signs and seals of the covenant. So a sacrament is a sign, a visible sign, covenant sign, appended to the words of the covenant to confirm those words. And the reality symbolized by those signs is received by means of partaking of them. Now the life promised to Adam in the covenant of life and sealed in the sign of the tree of life, as I said earlier, was eschatological life. It was the highest kind of life unmitigated divine blessing in the highest heaven, in the glory presence of God in his heavenly temple. It's the second breath of the spirit, upper register life. And likewise, the death threatened in the covenant was unmitigated divine wrath, the second death, damnation, eternal condemnation. And perfect personal exact and entire obedience was the condition of that eschatological advancement, that movement from lower register to upper register. So the covenant of works uh, revealed the pathway to consummation. It was the highway to heaven. <laughs> it revealed the pathway to consummation. Uh, and what exactly must man do to enter God's Sabbath rest, that upper register divine rest that we were looking at yesterday? What must he do to attain that second breath of the spirit and ascend from lower to upper register? He must pass that probationary test of the covenant of works. Now, of course, if you go over to Genesis chapter 3, and we all know very well this story, uh, Adam doesn't do that. He failed that test. And look at, at Genesis 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent, which Revelation 12, 9 identifies as the devil, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The serpent, the devil here, challenges God's prohibition in Genesis 2.17. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Now that's a direct contradiction of the word of God, right? He contradicts the word of, of God, which... Uh, revealed that the serpent was the enemy. That revealed that this is the enemy. This is that unclean, unholy intruder into the holy realm uh, from which the garden of Eden was to be guarded, Genesis 2.15. God tells Adam to guard the garden from an un unholy intruder. This reveals that this is the unholy intruder. The serpent should have been immediately rebuked in the name of the Lord just as Christ, the second last Adam, rebuked, rebuked the serpent in the wilderness whenever Christ was tempted to sin. So Genesis 3, 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. She took of the fruit, and she ate. The woman, as Meredith Klein said, revolted against the covenant of the Lord of life and light, 
and sealed in alliance with the rival prince of death and darkness. Adam also ate. He ate. And Klein adds, because he, Adam, was by God's appointment representative of all mankind in this probation, condemnation and death came upon all by this sin of the one, by the one sin of the one man, Romans 5, 18, 5, 5, 18 and 19, by the one sin of the one man, condemnation came upon all. So that's what happened to Adam and to us because of the breach of the covenant. He was the covenant head or federal head of the whole human race. So the penalty for covenant rebellion came upon all because of this one sin of the one man. Now Klein also says uh, the following, the creation order was a covenant of works, justification and attainment of the Sabbath kingdom, that Sabbath rest, divine Sabbath rest in the upper register, would have been the reward for meritorious achievement in a probation event. God confronted Adam, priestly guardian of the sanctuary, with Satan, a hostile intruder, to be overcome and rebuked in God's name. This victory would be the critical act of righteousness, the one act of righteousness, again using the language of Paul in Romans 5. This victory over the serpent would be the critical act of righteousness involving also obedience to the special probationary prohibition. And it would have been by means of that obedience that he would have received the second breath of the Spirit and moved to the heavenly temple realm. Now, how did the Lord himself respond to their disobedience? If you're still Genesis 3, look at verse 8. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God, or could be translated and probably should be the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden. Now the verb therefore walking, and I mentioned this last night, it's the same verb that's used for God walking to and fro in the sanctuary elsewhere in the Pentateuch, for example, in Leviticus 26, verse 12. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Does anyone know what uh, the Hebrew word is there for cool? in the cool of the day? Ruach, yeah, where is that found? Earlier in Genesis. Genesis 1-2, and how is it translated there? Spirit, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, very good. Ruach in Hebrew and the counterpart, pneuma in Greek, mean spirit or breath or wind, and it could be lowercase s spirit or uppercase s spirit depending on the context. So why it's translated cool, I have no idea. <laughs> it's not cool, they should have had it spirit. It means the spirit of the day, and it refers to, uh, it refers to the glory, presence, theophany that appeared in Genesis 1-2. The spirit of the day, of the day. What day? The day of judgment, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's advent. This is the day of the Lord coming in judgment, the spirit of the day. And man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. That probably, and it could be translated from the face of the Lord. They hid themselves from the face of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, growing up and hearing this story and uh, as a young adult, reading the Bible on my own, whenever I would read this, they heard God walking in the garden 
uh, in the cool of the day, I used to imagine that God was taking some sort of leisurely stroll through the garden in the cool of the evening and trying to find Adam. Where, where are you, Adam? He was just on a stroll in, in, in the cool of the evening. Uh, but that's not what this means, not at all. Uh, and that's not at all the image we should have in mind. God was not taking a leisurely stroll. He was coming in the spirit in the day of judgment and he was coming to judge. And uh, the, ima- that, the image that we should have in mind here is uh, the scene of the theophany at Mount Sinai. Why don't we look at that just really quick. Turn to Exodus chapter 19. This is Exodus chapter 19. And if you'll look at, uh, let's look at verses 16 through 20. Exodus 19, 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. That's the Shekinah glory cloud descending on Mount Sinai. And a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord, called, the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now, that is a terrifying scene. God's terrifying glory, pre, glory spirit theophany was heralded there by the thunder trumpet. That was the voice of the Lord God that Adam and Eve heard in the Garden of Eden. That's what they heard. And that's why Adam and Eve... Um, were terrified, and that's why they hid themselves from the, f- from the face of God. They were terrified of the wrath of God and hid themselves from the face of God. Think, for example, of Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, where it's talking about the, wic- the wicked on the spirit of the day of judgment when God comes in wrath to pour out his wrath on the ungodly. What do they do in Revelation 6, 16? Uh, they hide themselves uh, from God, or they attempt to, And they say to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us and hide us from what? Hide us from the face. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. That's what Adam and Eve were trying to do, to hide from the face of him who was seated on the throne. So that's the kind of terror that they had. Now before we look at what uh, God says to Adam and Eve, let me just note here a, a couple of things, a couple of consequences that the fall had on all humanity. And I want to highlight two consequences with regard to worship in particular. The fall, of course, had all kinds of consequences for humanity and for the whole cosmos, for the whole, the whole world, actually. But I'll, I'll highlight only two because these are directly related to worship. First of all, the first consequence um, of the fall, or the first thing I'll mention as a consequence of the fall with regard to worship is this. Uh, by the fall, because of the fall, all mankind, all human beings became idolaters by nature. They became idolaters by nature. And all unregenerate persons, that is, persons not regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, united to Christ through faith and made true worshipers in virtue of that union to Jesus Christ, all unregenerate persons worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, Romans 1, 25. 
In Romans chapter 1, uh, Paul knows of only two classes of people. That's it. And all humanity falls into one of those two groups. There are those who worship and serve the creature and those who worship and serve the creator. And all unregenerate persons are idolaters. And only those who are united to Christ through faith worship and serve the creator. That's it. All human beings fall into one of those two, two categories. So, I mean, you could put it in another way, in, in another way if you're using the language of Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, for example, in Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive, all will be made alive. In Adam, all are idolaters. All who are in Adam, the unregenerate, are idolaters. All who are in Christ, and only those who are in Christ, are true worshipers. And that's the reason, for example, when you're reading through uh, the book of Revelation, all human beings are divided into those two uh, groups, right? There are those who worship and serve the devil and those who worship and serve Christ. And in fact, when you're reading through Revelation, you'll see um, that there is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We saw that in Revelation 4 and 5 when we were reading through those chapters earlier. But then there's the counterfeit Trinity. There is, there is Satan, right? There's the devil. There's the beast. There's the false prophet. There's the dragon, there's the beast, and the false prophet, Revelation 12 and 13. It's the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And all human beings who don't worship the true triune living God follow the beast and worship the beast. That's Revelation 13. So all human beings fall into one of those two groups. The one group that worships the true living triune God is identified later in Revelation as the Bride of Christ. The other group is identified in Revelation as what? Yes, right, the harlot Babylon, right? So that's it. Those are the two, two groups of, of people. So all people are by nature, by their fallen nature, inherited from Adam the first, are idolaters. And idolatry was both the root of Adam's sin and the result of Adam's sin. Calvin uh, said this, this is one of the well-known sayings from Calvin, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. That's a good way of putting it. Man's nature, his fallen, fallen nature, inherited from Adam, is a perpetual factory of idols, perpetually producing idols. Now, of course, uh, to worship idols doesn't necessarily mean to make uh, literal physical images of objects and to bow down before those images. Uh, but idolatry, an idol, is anything that takes the place of God as our ultimate uh, object of desire and worship, etc. right? All right, second consequence of the fall. Because of the fall, all mankind became defiled and unfit to be in God's holy presence. In order to dwell in the presence of the, the holy God, either the heavenly temple the invisible realm, the upper register temple, or any earthly replica of that in the lower register, our guilt must be taken away and our sin atoned for. Our uncleanness must, must be removed and we must be cleansed from idolatry. Let me give you uh, just briefly here uh, three passages of scripture to consider. One is Isaiah 6 verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 7. This is one of the most instructive texts um, for the subject of worship. Isaiah, by a vision, 
in the spirit as John was in Revelation 4, is taken up into the upper register heavenly temple of God, that invisible realm, and he sees God on his throne, in his throne room. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. He sees God in his throne, on his throne, in his throne room, and he's being worshiped there by the angels of heaven. And what does Isaiah say? This is Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 7, and you may be very familiar with this, especially because of R.C. Sproul's teaching, right, on the holiness of God. So, Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. His throne is in his temple, right? Heaven is my throne, his throne is in his temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each with six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, and these are, this is the same hymn, or song, that we read in Revelation 4 earlier. It's called in Latin the Sanctus, which means holy, and it's called by the Eastern Orthodox Church in Greek the Trisagion. Uh, Hagios in Greek means holy, so three holy, 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 holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook as the voice of him uh, who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, now here's Isaiah, his response to this vision of God's uh, heavenly glory and his heavenly temple and the holiness of God being um, exclaimed in the praise of the angels. Isaiah's response is to recognize instantly his own uncleanness, right? He's unclean, ritually impure, ceremonially unclean because of his sin, which defiled him and made him unfit to be in the presence of God. So what does he think's going to think is going to happen to him? He thinks he's about to die, right? Woe is me, he says, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, that's a confession of sin. It's a cry of despair, too, right? <laughs> Woe is me. But it's also an admission, a recognition of his sin, and a confession of his uncleanness, unfitness to be in God's presence. But what happens here? Now, remember, you're in a temple setting, and you're in the setting of worship because the angels are worshiping God in his heavenly sanctuary temple. You have immediately following that uh, an act of cleansing by which Isaiah is cleansed from his uh, uncleanness, his defilement. And so verse 6 says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Again, altar is one of the furniture pieces of the tabernacle. And he touched my mouth. Ouch, right? Burning live coal, touching your mouth. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and what? Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So you have confession of sin, and now an assurance of pardon. That's where this comes from. Uh, this, that's where we get it in our liturgy. We have a confession of sin and worship, corporate confession of sin, usually followed by some sort of declaration of assurance, by which the words of assurance from Holy Scripture, assuring us of forgiveness of sins, assuring those who confess their sins sincerely to God and put their faith in Christ for forgiveness, are in fact forgiven of their sins. And here you have confession followed by assurance of pardon. As part of the heavenly liturgy, when Isaiah's there, because he's an unclean person who needs to be cleansed, and it's part of the earthly liturgy because uh, we're sinners and need to be cleansed. Now again, the, the 
this comes into view because of the fall, which makes us uh, unclean and unfit to be in God's presence. Now let's look at Ezekiel 37. I had mentioned two things, two consequences specifically, actually Ezekiel 36, not 37. Uh, 37 we looked at last night, the Valley of Dry Bones. I had mentioned that uh, the fall made all mankind idolaters and consequently made all human beings unclean, ceremonially unclean and unfit to be in God's presence because of their sin. And here you can see, again, God's promise to remove our uncleanness. This is Ezekiel 36, and look at verse 25. God promises in a promise that's related to the new covenant that God will establish with his people. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. So unclean, idolaters. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, with that in mind, turn quickly and look at Hebrews chapter 10. I think you see a very clear New Testament counterpart um, alluding to what we just read in Ezekiel, a cleansing from defilement. Now, what is the goal of that cleansing from uncleanness and defilement um, because of our idolatrous nature and sin? The goal is to bring us into the most holy place from which Adam was exiled because of his uncleanness. Now, Hebrews chapter 10, and why don't we, why don't we start with verse 11, uh, Hebrews 10, 11, and it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, and here citing Jeremiah 31, which is another promise regarding that new covenant, parallel to Ezekiel 36, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Hence, hopox once for all. Now, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, in light of this, here's an exhortation. Since we have confidence to do what? Do you see it? to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain veil, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our, our having our, having our hearts, uh, having our conscience rather, our hearts, rather, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Uh, there you can see a clear echo of that Ezekiel 36 passage, right? Okay, so um, that's what is required in order for us 
to be in the glory presence of God and to experience life with God, fellowship, communion with God, and to worship God. You saw it. It's the reason for Adam's ex- ex- exile, Adam and Eve's expulsion from the Garden of Eden, and it's the reason why Isaiah was cleansed. It's what God promised to, to do in Ezekiel 36 and what Christ has accomplished um, in, the, in the fullness of time. Now that promise, um, the first promise of Christ accomplishing that for us is in Genesis chapter 3, and we'll come back to Genesis chapter 3 after a break. Let's, let's take a break, but before we break, you want to uh, have any questions? Anyone have any questions? All right, want to take 10 minutes? Or meet when it's uh, straight up, 10 o'clock? And I was reminded.